administrating God's business. And I want to pick on that vision, administrating the business of God. We are called to administer the business of God. God has entrusted to us this responsibility to administer his uh, he's called us out of sin, out of the world, out of darkness into light. And he's cleaned us up through the Holy Spirit and through the truth of his word. And he's using you and I to, 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 um, to, to admit. He's, he's entrusting the kingdom, the kingdom of God into our hearts and into our lives. Um, he's using you and I to administer the, the, the kingdom of God and the business of the kingdom. And I studied us last Sunday by the scripture. Scripture in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 to 19. This is the, these are the words of Jesus, beautiful words from Jesus. And he's having a conversation like he used to do with his disciples. This idea of, you know, having conversations uh, is part of our heritage. We, we gather in, the, you know, being in the habit of gathering and having conversations about the kingdom of God and about the business of God and about the plan of God, the will of God. Jesus is doing that here in Matthew 16, verses 18 to 19. I tell you, we're picking obviously on a conversation that's been rolling already. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Who's building? Jesus is building. I will build my church. We are grateful that Jesus takes the personal responsibility to build his church. That it doesn't have to depend on, on, on Robert and, and Mafa and Kings. It depends on Jesus. And then Jesus extends himself through human, human vessels. But really, the thing on Jesus himself. I will build my church. Of course, inside of that I will build is him commissioning, calling and commissioning people. He commissions people. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be, will be loose in heaven. Beautiful, beautiful power that these words are the foundation upon which you and I are here today. Jesus saw you, he saw me, when he was declaring these words, I will build my church. My church being you and I, being people. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. We said that that statement reveals three fundamental issues upon which church operates. Three fundamental ideas. Number one is the must be built. And of course, church is the people. Church is Ngazi and Kiara and Dumo and Malusi and Kai. Church is the people. You know, church must be built. And when we connect that to the statement in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13, we see that church must be built unto maturity in Christ. Until we are matured, until we are perfected, until there are no longer uh, uh, blemishes and, and, and wrinkles and uncleanness of the world until we are brought to a place of Christ-likeness. This thing must continue. We can never get tired with the idea of building within the church. If we do so, then we rob ourselves and we are the enemy um, uh, 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 you know, to thrive in the church. To thrive in the church. You know, um, sometimes you know, people have this idea we must just be caught up in activities. Stop this building you know, stuff. No, we have to build we have to build. How far, how long must this continue until church reaches maturity? Actually, this is very important. It's, it is eschatological in the sense that this is the thing that unleashes the end. The 
planting of the church is very, very significant in the prophetic scheme of things. This is what unleashes the end. You know, the, the, we only stop, we only stop when church reaches maturity. That's the only time we stop, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. So that's the first idea Jesus gives us. The second idea Jesus gives us is that church operates in the environment of spiritual warfare. He talks about, as soon as he says, I will build my church, the next line is, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. In the ancient structures of how you know, things were built and how cities were built, the gate, the gate of the city was like what we would parliament today. That's where the elders met to make law. But also the gate was where wars, where resolutions around wars were declared, where strategies were formed. And so when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overcome it, he's really saying whatever that the darkness forms and plans and forms against you, against you and I, will not prevail. Provided, provided you and I keep following Jesus Christ and keep walking in the wisdom of his word. So right now, as we speak, um, uh, spirits of darkness are meeting at the gate and planning for your life, planning to see how you can be ambushed by the enemy. Um, there, is a, there is a word, Ephesians 6, Paul says, we wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against the schemes of the devil. And that word schemes means methods of the devil. The word talks about, you know, you know there's a, this book about the art of war. And when there's a war, there's a whole methodology of how generals plan wars. The word schemes speak of ambush, being ambushed along the way. I'm sure you've been saved long enough. You, you've, you've hit uh, more you feel like, shucks, it looks like the enemy was seeking to ambush me there. Right? Uh-huh. And, and that's what uh, Jesus says, the gates of hate, where the strategies of darkness are formed, where the plans of the enemy are made against you. Those things will not overcome. They will not prevail against you and I. So we understand that uh, church operates in the, in the environment of warfare. We, we, we understand, you know, you know, our enemy is called the devil, Satan. Uh, the devil is, is accuser, Satan, the opposer. That's what it means. And he uses the currency of the flesh, which is your flesh and my flesh desires, desire what? Desire pleasure. This deep-seated desire for pleasure is what the enemy uses. From since Genesis chapter 3, their desire for pleasure, their desire, their craving for the fruit, uh, the tree, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil is what the enemy used. And so the enemy will not use just random stuff. He's going to use what your flesh actually craves for. Church operates in the environment of warfare. Number three, church is a missional community. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. And last Sunday, we looked at the word, words of Jesus in John 17, verse 18, where he says, I, I have sent them into the world. We are sent. And the idea of being sent means that there's a specific mission. There's a specific assignment that God has for you and I. So if we're missional, in other words, we're not aimless people. We're not just looking for the next thing to do. But if we are missional, that means we are focused on that one thing that God, there is that one thing that God has called Kazi to, to be and to do in, in life. There is that one thing that God has called Kiara to, to 
and to do in, in life. You know, there's that one thing that God has called lonely to do and to be in life. And, you know, you and I have to search that thing and live for that thing. Church is a missional community. Church is a missional community. And of course, this idea that we're building in the church, you know, uh, captures all of those complex processes. Church is not some, um, uh, you know, simple, uh, simplistic community. When we talk about building in church, we're talking about establishing doctrine. We're talking about getting people saved. We're talking about being purified by the word of truth. We're talking about transformation in Jesus Christ. About building in church, we're talking about people, but also we're talking about people groups, people relations. We're talking about hearts, the human heart. That's where the, the, the wrestle takes place in the human heart. We're talking about people, we're talking about relationships, we're talking about the community, we're talking about cultural interface, bringing black and Indian together. That's in the, in the, in the city of Durban, in the, in the KZN province, is a, is a revolt against the principalities of darkness. You know, we're talking about bringing men, male and female, into one space, young and old, and facilitating these reconciliation processes. Because the, the enemy has drawn boundaries and geographic boundaries that determine who can relate with who. And oftentimes, it's, we want to relate to people that look like us. And so there's this built-in, there's this default hostility between people groups, between human beings. So, church is called to revolt against that and to bring people that are otherwise in hostile, you know, relational terms, bring them to a place of reconciliation. So, we're building people, we're building people groups, young people, adults, men, women. How many of us know that there's tensions between old and young? Yeah? And the young always feel like uh, old people like Klanganani are... <laughs> they, they, you know, they, <laughs> they, you know, they just know nothing. <laughs> that, that's what the young guys think. Like, these old people know nothing. There's this tension. Why does the enemy do that? Because he wants to rob the next generation always of impartation of wisdom, right? The, the of the kingdom happens in the context of family. And in family, what do you find? The senior, senior pillars, the senior pillars, and the junior pillars. That's what you find in family. Is that right? Yeah, you find cross-section, you know, the interface of generations. That's how God has designed this thing to be. And church is called, the church of Jesus Christ is called family. Is that right? We are family. So in church, and sometimes when church falls into, when church falls into the, the deception of China, yeah, the young people do their thing, the old people do their thing, you know, we actually segment church, and that's actually, the, and yes, there must be forecast building, agree with that, but uh, we don't want to, we don't want a situation where the young people doing their thing, old people do, do, no, no, it's family, and we celebrate family. Church is also spheres of, of life, and church are businessmen. Church are families, vocation, people in different vocations. Um, um, so, so, I mean, if, if people doing different degrees, uh, if, if Kiara and Gaza are, are pursuing a vocation in 
That's church. Stepping into a space. And we have to find ways to build in. Building church is quite a, is quite a complex process. So church is a missional community. And we said that the mission is twofold. The mission is formative as it is operational. The first sign that someone is engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ is when they allow Jesus to transform them into Christ-likeness. That's the first sign of stepping into kingdom mission. Before we, we, we you know, have you, have you been in a space or in, a, in an experience where you see people preach, but man, you know, they're just horrible human beings. Yeah? That's not very attractive to the world. It's great to preach, but we have to be godly human beings. And so we need, this begins with us allowing Jesus to transform us, to convict us. The first step into kingdom mission is in transformation. That's why we are called disciples of Jesus. We never graduate out of this thing of discipleship. We are disciples, just disciples who are witnessing disciples or disciple witness, whatever you want to call it. It's important because the first step into kingdom mission begins with your life. The world is not just listening to your words. It's looking into the construct of your life. And long after your words vanish, long after you lose your voice in this world, people will not really remember your How many of us know that? If a book has to be written about you, that book is not going to be simply about the things you used to preach. It's going to be about the life you lived. And so transformation, the formation of Christ in us is important. Paul is crying, Galatians, I, I'm groaning for you, Galatians. I'm in labor pains until Christ is formed within you. Until Christ is formed. So uh, Paul sees the, 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 the significance of Christ formed within the church. But we also said that uh, last Sunday, building the mission, uh, uh, building and, and the mission work hand in hand. So church leaders must equip the saints that's building the church, but church leaders together with the saints must reach out to the world. That's the missional aspect of things. So we have to build within the, within, and all these things happen in the environment of warfare. There's lots of that happens within the church. In the proclamation of the word of God. Jesus says in the parable of the sower. When the word is proclaimed. The birds of the air come. And they want to steal the impartation. And so as I speak to you. I am competing with things. That want to steal this very word. That I'm proclaiming to you. It could be the conditions you're coming out of. It could be you know, issues in your mind. In the state of your mind. And stuff like that. The mission is the outworking of vision. Number two. The vision is for the appointed time. Though it tarries, what must you do? Wait. What must you do? Wait. We are sent, of course, to a specific mission. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And we began looking at the specific mission upon this church. The specific mission of God upon this church. The specific mission of God upon this church. Our contribution to the church of Jesus Christ and to the world around us is what we call kingdom humanity. That's the word that God has been carving, building on the inside of us for over a decade now. Kingdom humanity, the arrangement of 
human life in Christ Jesus, like we said in that video. The world more and more cares less about what you believe in. The world more and more cares less about your theology. The world simply wants to how to be a human being, how to be a man and how to be a, human, uh, a woman, how to be a girl and how to be a boy. If the world can win in telling you how to be human, then really, to the world, as far as the world is concerned, matter what you believe in. That's the battle of the world in which we now are operating. So God is upping our game. He is empowering us, you know. And, and inside of Kingdom Humanity, saying that church is not just a devotional community. We're not just, just about, we love worshiping God and praying. We are priests unto God. But actually, church represents Russia's humanity before the Lord. When he looks at, at, at us, he must see the restoration of the righteousness of humanity, which was lost at the Garden of Eden. And, and as we've been saying again, inside of Kingdom Humanity, there are three ways in which we represent Christ. We represent Christ first and foremost through our spirituality, our devotional life, our worship unto God. Secondly, we represent Christ through our humanity, our humanness, the quality of our lives. Your character, your identity, those things are tools in the hands of the Lord that he wants to use to proclaim and to broadcast righteousness before the world. And he wants young people and old people, males and females. He wants the 40s of this world like me who are not uh, having midlife crisis and we're walking in, in, the, in the purity of, of the word of the Lord, of, of the life of Jesus Christ. He's using you and I to broadcast before the world. Now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the civil dimension of God has to be expressed before the, before the world. So our humanness is important. Your character is important. Your character is a power, powerful tool in the hands of, of Jesus. Your identity is, is a powerful tool in the hands of Jesus. Your worldview is a powerful tool in the hands of Jesus. And he wants to use all of those things to proclaim something before the world. And thirdly, we express Christ or our faith through citizenship. First and foremost, we're called in the word of God, citizens. You're not a citizen only when you get your ID in South Africa and get your nationality. That is, that is the principle of citizenship is embedded in the very structure of God's creation. When God creates us, he plants us within a space. In other words, he makes us citizens within the Garden of Eden. And he gives us the responsibility to steward that space. And of course, we mess it up. But we have this responsibility. And that does not begin when you turn 18 or 16 and, and get an, an, ID, an ID document. It is not nations of this world that, tell, that, that give you the value of citizenship it is the word of God you are Adam you are part of the last Adam you are part of Christ you are part of the second Adam and so your citizenship comes from the, the divine act of creation and not from the department of home affairs yeah your citizenship and citizenship simply means you exist within a space nobody leaves 
in some abstract, you know, you, you came from family. And in family, you learn to coexist with people. You learn to follow some, some values, some laws, some principles that are guiding life is done within that space. That's when you first learn about citizenship. Where is it? In the family. You learn to wash the dishes. You, you are taking care of the environment around you. You make your bed. You're learning something about life. You know, daddy and mommy go out, they work, and they bring back, you know, uh, food on the table. And you sit around, and you learn to share things. That's when you start learning about citizenship. That's the first space of life. And so if you were the devil, and you wanted to disrupt people's idea of citizenship, what would you do? Disrupt family life. Because the family is the basic unit of society. That's when people learn to operate within a defined environment. Long before we come into church, long before we, we get an ID in a particular uh, you know, in, in a nation, we learn citizenship within the space of family. And then we get we go to the space of, uh, of workplace and, and uh, vocationally or business or in whatever other spaces of community, neighborhoods. All of those are spaces where God has planted us. Acts 17 um, you know, God created through one man, God created all nations of the earth. And he established us as inhabitants of the earth. Inhabitants. Say inhabitants. Powerful word in the word of God. We are inhabitants. It means we, we inhabit spaces. Have you thought about that word? How powerful that is? We inhabit spaces. And so we, we, when we get into politics... We study law like Kiara and, and Gazi. We, we're learning to formulate instruments that will help human beings to live in harmony within those spaces. And when we do those things with a sense of kingdom vocation, that becomes a powerful thing. Because we can become lawmakers. We can change and, and advocate for righteous laws. Because that's what law does. It, it facilitates how human May, may coexist in peace and in harmony. You want to go home this evening knowing that nobody's going to break into your house. But if they do, you want, to, you want to know that they will be taken to jail, right? There are laws that govern the spaces. Did God set the laws in the Garden of Eden? Yes, he did. He told them exactly what to do and what not to do. And that was meant to protect them. And so, as the church, we want to begin to advocate to believers, and even as we're going to be doing during the Kingdom Citizenship Seminar, that we are called by God to exercise spatial spirituality. The spirituality of space, of bringing the righteousness of God into the spaces of life around us. It's not just enough that we come here, it's come and worship Jesus but he wants us to take that sense of worship and exercise it as a sense of duty now the words that I use for Adam in Genesis 2 that Adam was put in the garden to work it to take 
than to work it. I think the word work, to work, to work, also fundamentally means to worship God. So do you know how you and I worship God? By making our bed, by washing our dishes, by, by taking care of the environment around us. We worship God. So worship can be exercised through spatial spirituality, through how we take care of space around us. Take care of others or people around us. Absolutely, absolutely important. And that graphic there, we should really show the, the, the spec, basic structure of the Word of God. That the Word of God blesses you as a devotional being. It tells you the Lord your God is one. You shall worship no other God. Right? The Word of God addresses you as a devotional being. But secondly, the Word of God addresses you as a human being. It tells you how to conduct yourself. The Word of God has a pack of manners, of, of, of customs, of habits, of righteous living. It tells you, it gives you the idea of what it means to be a human being. But also the Word of God addresses you, number three, as a spatial being, as a citizen. It tells you how to live with other people. What must you do to your neighbor? What must you do to your neighbor? Love them as you love yourself. So it, that's when the, the principles of citizenship are established for us, that we have this duty for the well-being of others. Just look away. And Jesus gives us the, gives us the parable of the, of, the, of, the, of the Good Samaritan to teach us what kingdom citizenship looks like. What happens there? He comes and he sees a man lying on the ground. He looked dead. And what does the priest do? He looks away, right? Yeah? The Levite comes and he sees a man. What does he do? He looks away. And do you know why they did that? Was the law told them not to come near a dead body. So they were protecting themselves. They were protecting their, their ministry. They were protecting something about, they, they were protecting their vocation. Do we do that? Citizens of the 21st century, we protect our vocations all the time. We don't want to get messed up. We don't want to get our hands dirty. But what does the good Samaritan do when he sees a man half dead? He goes to him, takes him, gives him a ride, takes him to a, uh, uh, an Airbnb. He pays for his accommodation. He takes out of his own medicines. He takes care of this man. And then he has to leave to his wherever he was going. So he tells the owner of the lodge, please take care of this man. He gives him the money. Yeah, he takes out of it. And Jesus is teaching us that we have the responsibility. You have responsibility. You have responsibility. So we have a mission from God, LSA, but this mission will cost us. Like we saw in Philippians 1.29, and we read the scripture last Sunday, the mission will cost us because we are called not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Jesus. And I call that crossing the line, believers crossing the line, because I think there is a, a crisis you know, in, in, the, in the church. Um, our people just standing, us believers standing from a 
believing in Jesus, but actually a call is to suffer for him. Right? It is to suffer for him. And so in other words, there is something we need to pay towards. We are responsible for the mission of to suffer for it. And we have said that there are three fundamental ways in which we have to suffer and, and, and pay the cost for the mission of Jesus is through our lives first and foremost. We really that first and foremost in, in your life. Jesus is interested in my life, my devotion, my purity. And then it's through my time. My time is my presence. I am here today. I could be having somewhere, but I'm here. That's my time. It's my service. It's my sacrifice. I woke up and, and got ready to be here. And then my finances, my contribution, but also finances. And it's not just about coins and paper. It's about the principle of partnership. So when you read the book of Philippians, um, the whole book of Philippians, Paul, among other things, writes to the Philippians to celebrate their partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to quantify what that partnership was. He says, you gave me aid and gifts. And he says, I celebrate your partnership. So money is not just paper and coin. Money, finance is your partnership. It is the expression of your heart towards the mission of God. It is you and I saying, hey, we partner with what God is doing. You know, there, there, there is no other way that God might test human beings to partner with, his, with him. Really, fundamental is got to be in the finances. You, you know, there's this idea sometimes when it comes to fasting, people fast watching TV and fast different things. But actually, how many of us know fasting fundamentally is about food? Huh? Yeah, it's nice to fast TV. <laughs> That's just for you. Fasting fundamentally is about, is about food. It, it's about the thing that nourishes your body. Fasting TV is just such something else. It's just and I dealing with our addictions. That can't be, could not be classified as fasting. And so the same way, in the same way, partnership in the gospel has to matter, you know, in the, in the critical things of our lives, critical resources of our lives. Our lives, our time, and our finances. Lives, time, finances. The, king, the mission of the kingdom is the enterprise that facilitates human well-being. When God releases a word, that word is meant to sustain us. A man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So the mission of the kingdom is the enterprise that facilitates human well-being. But that enterprise also creates human expenditure. You know, God gives us an enterprise, a whole enterprise, not just a sermon, but an enterprise. The enterprise must be met by the faithful and generous giving of the people of God. And God has put a system in place, a system in the word of God. The fundamental principle of God's system is that God has given us eternal life through Christ. And so we have an obligation to give him our lives 
times, our time and our resources. Because he has given us, he has first loved us, right? By giving us Jesus, eternal life through Jesus Christ. It says we can no longer live just for ourselves. We now have to live for him. That's the fundamental principle. It's a principle of, of divine exchange, in other words. God gives you and I eternal life. And in return, we give him our lives. Yeah? That's how the thing works. We give him our time. And we give him our resources. We don't just take eternal life and walk away. We give him back our lives. That's how it works from Genesis from the book of, Re- of Genesis to the book of Revelation, that how this thing works. God gives you and I eternal life. In return, you give him your life. That's how it works. That's why, that's the principle of the tithe is, is about that. God gives you and I the ability to create wealth. And then you give him the tithe back. Because you recognize that he, he is... He's a gracious God. He's a gracious God. He's a gracious God. The system of God is, as we see in the word of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the part giving their tithes. In, in, in exchange for what God had given to them. Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek the priest in Genesis 14. Jacob gave the tithe. And so that's how we partner with the things of God. The tabernacle that was built by Moses in the desert was built through free will offering that came from Israelites who in turn had received them through the plundering of the Egyptians. So the idea was that you didn't just plunder the Egyptians and and then keep the money in the bank account somewhere. But equally, Pastor Moses could not manipulate these people to give. God put the requirement. It it had to be free will offering. But that's how the tabernacle is. Tabernacle then becomes the enterprise that facilitates human well-being within the nation of Israel. Is that right? Imagine you didn't have the tabernacle. Tabernacle is where the high priest would enter once a year to pray to God for the redemption of the people. But that tabernacle, that same tabernacle was built out of the gold and the silver that came from the pockets of the people. So if you refused to participate in that project, you're essentially refusing to participate in something that would nourish your well-being. That's how this thing works. That's how this when God established the nation of Israel he commanded that there would be you know the, 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 the tribe of Levi would be set aside just really for the temple the Levites were the lecturers and educators of the nation God calls a whole tribe if you were born and your lineage Back to the Levitical tribe, you had a call by birth. And your call was to be the educator of the nation, to be the steward of the law, to take care of the temple. 
you could not take other vocations by law and that was god's demand upon you as a levite and the way in which god compensates for the fact that your options vocational options are limited was that he commands the nation to give their tithe into the system so he establishes a treasury a whole fund to take care of the levite and then people could go and be farmers they could go and do other things knowing that the levites were there taking care of the law and taking care of the tabernacle because actually the sustenance of the nation depended on those things yeah you you could go and be a farmer and go and pursue different vocations if there was no temple and there was no law there was no nation actually and that's how god works and so the principle is translated into the new covenant when god establishes church is that you know we we no longer are called according to tribal lines but god decides that he will call whom he wants to call and so there are those of us who are called to come and serve full time in the church for various reasons for various reasons because if church is indeed an important entity in human in the in the spectrum of life within the scope system of humanity then you surely need full time employees there to take care of things and that's how god has done it taking from these of the levites and levitical tribe and all these things it translates it into the church but then the thing works because uh because um uh, uh, god has commanded in the church that we give our tithes and offerings to to sustain the mission of the lord and the call of god comes really by by god's it's it's a the word call means to be summoned by god i mean when i got saved i didn't want i didn't, didn't want to be a, like a full time pastor i wanted to be a good corporate believer that was me you know i wanted to be able to pursue my career you know my friends are like flying all over the place man you know i wanted to pursue my my vocation and just give my tithe to church and but, but 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 god had a had a had a different plan i was summoned by god people are summoned by god and why would god summon people is because there's a system in place to take care of the of the business of god my job over in above just shepherding and pastoring in this church is to develop the doctrine the content knowledge of kingdom humanity these things get clearer and clearer along to develop content to develop knowledge to impart to the body of Jesus Christ and that's the system of god let's read the scripture in corinthians 9 verses 4 to 14 this is paul writing to the corinthians it's very complicated church very very complicated church corinthians first corinthians 9 verses 4 to 14 don't we 
provide to food and drink? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? You know, Paul is picking up from systems that create nation states. You can't have an army without SARS, without collecting taxes. That's what basically Paul is saying. You cannot have an army without collecting taxes from the citizens. Care of that army. Or soldiers that go to war on, on behalf of the nation have to be paid. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of grapes? So it's, it, it goes into systems of creation. Mafa will understand this better than all of us as a farmer. Who plants a vineyard and does not? I don't know if he has a vineyard. He should. <laughs> he should. <laughs> Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? I used to love going to my house in the 80s as a young boy, you know, and would milk the cows, man. And for me, it was just a little adventure. For my cousins who lived in that reality, it was work. <laughs> and I would be very excited, you know, milking the car. But actually, it's a lot of work. But here's the thing. There comes a time where after tending the flock, you drink the milk. Do I say, verse 8, do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law then eat translates the principle into the law. So it starts by talking about how nation states are run. It talks about the ecosystem of nature, planting and all these things and taking care of animals. Then it translates it into the law. Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treating out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us. Doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because then plowman plows and the thresher threshes. They ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. In verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, too much if we reap a material harvest from you. If others, in verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this That word right there is the word authority, exousia, authority to have legal right. We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than, rather than hinder the spell of Christ. That word put up, the phrase put up means to cover with silence, to be measured, to not walk around complaining about stuff. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their, uh, their food from the temple? So he's then taking them back to the Levitical principle. And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered altar in the same way the Lord has commanded. Let's say that together. The Lord has commanded. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel 
receive their living from? From the gospel. That's a system of God. It takes care of the enterprise of the kingdom. It makes sure that the machinery is working. The mission of God is moving forward. Because LSA, if human destiny is dependent on church, is it? Yes, it is. Then we have quite an important mission in our hands. For this reason, God will mobilize knowledge resources in the form of knowledge, human beings, people like you know, me and other people that are called in, into this. We are all called, by the way. We're called into something. Knowledge, he will mobilize the resources in the form of knowledge, humans, finances, material, resources, all these things and all these stuff that you see in front of you. Yeah? Uh-huh. All these instruments, these things cost money. Is that true? There has to be budget for, we are in this building, there has to be budget for, the, for that. These things don't come free. But we have to, we have to gather here. We can't, we can't, we won't gather. What's, what happens in the mission of God if we don't gather? It unravels. Yeah? We must offer our lives, times, and finances towards the mission. We're in this phase of rebuilding, LSA, of consolidating, of, of, and of marching out, of, of engaging with the things of God. We're operating in the environment of five loaves, what I call the environment of five loaves and two fish, where the need far outweighs our resources. We must be faithful with what we have. Because in the story of the five loaves and two fish, somebody was responsible with what they had. Let's actually read the story of the five loaves and two fish. Very, very fascinating story, actually. In John chapter 6, different gospels capture this story. Chapter 6, verses 5 to 11, the story of five loaves and two fish. In verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where we buy bread for these people to eat. You always see with the preaching of the gospel and this need for bread and all these things. <laughs> where shall we buy bread? He asked Philip, where shall we buy bread for people to eat? He asked this only to test Philip. For he already had in mind what, was, what he was going to do. He already had in mind what he was going to do. Look at your neighbor and say, God has a plan. And that plan was already in motion in his mind and his heart, but he asked Brother Philip. I think Jesus was fun to be around. Don't you think? I think Jesus was fun to be around. He, I mean, he's being naughty here. get in trouble of Jesus was naughty. No, let's, just say, let's just say he was fun to be around. <laughs> he asked Philip this question. Where are we going to feed these people? Verse 7, Philip answered him. He gave him a very accounting, accountant-like answer. I mean, Philip worked it out very 
in his brain. Philip was clever. He said, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I mean, he worked it out. I don't know how. I mean, there were 5,000 people. He did the mathematics. He did costing. That's what Mafa used to do, right? Costing. He did costing and he like worked it out. He worked out the budget. He said, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. If you read the story from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, it says that by this time, it was late in the day. So Jesus has been preaching. They had what? Like a long meeting. So, you know, long meetings have always been around. There's a, there's a theology for it. <laughs> by this time, it was late in the day. He said to him, this is a remote place, and it's already late. Send the people away. It's a logistical, wise thing to, to say. So, Philip gives Jesus this accountant-type answer. In verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small belly loaves. And two small fish. What do you think Philip is saying when, when <laughs> there's 5,000 people? He's been asked first, what should we do? And he, he's already said it's going to take eight months' wages to feed these people. The wise Andrew, the wise Andrew says we have five loaves and two fish. And it's not even his. It's a boy, it's a child's food. It's like it takes two food. <laughs> and wants to supply the people of LSA. How funny is that? I think I can, I can see Philip's mind. Like, number one, it's not your food. It's a kiddie's food. And it's only five loaves and two fish. What I want to do with these 5,000 people? In verse 10, Jesus seems to be excited about this offer. So when Andrew says, here's a boy with five small uh, loaves and and two fish, but how far will they go? Among some, you can see the guys, I've got five, we've got five loaves and two fish, but I, don't, but I don't know. He's handing over to Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus says, people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. The only thing that was plenty here was grass. <laughs> Man, talk about relevant resource, eh? There was plenty of grass in that place. And the man sat down, about 5,000 of them. Philip, brother Philip had counted them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. As much as, it means there were seconds. Some people will understand, they want to say seconds, what I'm talking about. It means we move from five loaves and two fish to seconds, having seconds and thirds. They distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. That word distributed means it's not, you know, when you supply, when you're giving masses, sometimes they just throw food, right? And you just jump and grab. That word distributed means hand to hand. It means every one of them received personal attention. That's what that word means. Fascinating story, isn't it? A very, very interesting 
story. When we look at it, it's a story of tension between the mission and resources. The mission is huge, the resources are scarce. It's a time when momentum is building up in the mission. People are coming in thousands to Jesus because of what he had been teaching and because of the mission. The mission leads to logistical and financial concerns. The likes of Philip are concerned. There are logistical concerns about there are no shops here, but there are concerns about even if there were shops, we didn't have enough budget, we don't have enough budget to supply these people. So the mission leads to logistical and financial concerns. They are in a remote area with no shops, and the treasury of Jesus, of Jesus' ministry, does not seem to have enough money to buy food, even if there were shops. There are conflicting views among the disciples about what to do. Philip who says, well, there is no way we can raise funds for this. Andrew says, well, we have something legal. We can maybe do something about it. Some are calling for the mission to be stopped. And people are away. Let's abort the mission. There are no funds. There are no resources. There are no finances. Let's abort the mission. Jesus already had a plan, but he took disciples through a process of There's a process of testing of hearts, LSA. He took disciples through a process of testing. The boy with five loaves and two fish. That boy took the resource probably belonging to his parents. And we have the faith, the partnership faith of the boy and Andrew. And that partnership faith of faith creates a context for the miracle to, to happen. In the story, we could either follow the wise Philip, who was the accountant, or the stu stupid Andrew, who thought you could feed people with five loaves and two fish. And I say the missions of the kingdom of God will always operate in an environment of tension. They require a people with a mindset of faith, of believing God. We cannot use finances to determine the validity of the mission. But at the same time, we have to give of what we have, the five loaves and the two fish that we have, and look at Jesus multiply it. Amen. Amen. Look at Jesus. Do what? Multiply it. He tests our hearts to see what is in our heart. To see whether there's stinginess or there's generosity. Remember, generosity does not flow out of millions. It flows from the heart. There was a woman who gave virtually nothing in the temple one day. And Jesus says, this woman is generous because she gave from nothing. There's plenty of stories in the word of God that reflect this principle. The widow gave to the prophet the last meal she heard. Generosity has nothing to do with your bank balance. Generosity has everything to do with our hearts. And our sense of value to the mission of God.
the mission of God that we're going to be generous. Have we crossed the line in the mission of God? From just believing in something to suffering for something. You know that word suffer means to experience pain. Yeah, you know, because you have to learn the discipline of, okay, I'm not going to, instead of watching three movies, maybe I'm going to watch one and I'm going to take the rest of the finances that I was going to use to watch and give to the mission of God. Yeah? That's like something leaves you. Have we crossed the line from just simply believing in something to suffering for something? To suffer means to experience pain. To suffer in a different context means to be subjected to evil. But you know, the word suffering is the origins of the word passion. Passion. Let's say that word passion. You know, people like to have a passion. What are you passionate about? People would ask you. You know when people ask you that? What are they really, should be, uh, like really asking? What are you willing to suffer for? So that word passion, not just meaning what excites us, but what are we prepared to suffer for? That's the real meaning of word passion. You know the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's that, that phrase, the passion of Christ, is a theological phrase taking, meaning the sufferings of the Christ. The sufferings of the Christ. You know, so the origins of the word passion, the etymology, you know, for those of us who are English teachers like Megan, of the word passion is the, is the word suffering. What are we willing to suffer for is what are, what are we passionate about? What moves us? You know, we recently went to a, a jazz um, um, concert and there was these two old men playing so beautifully. And you watch these men, it's like, when you know they have been on a track in life that surely has been a track of suffering, of, of, of focusing on this one thing that they're passionate about and of deciding to let go of the other things. Yeah? Yes? Because they are passionate about music. That's what they would do. What are you passionate about? What, is, what passion has God put inside of your own heart? What are you willing to suffer for? So passion, LSA, Equals what? Suffering. And suffering reflects what? Passion. Passion equals suffering. And suffering reflects passion. Passion equals suffering. And suffering reflects passion. Suffering reflects passion. Absolutely important. Passion equals suffering and suffering reflects passion. Let's say those lines together. Passion equals suffering and suffering reflects passion. 
want our youth, like, what are you passionate about? What are we willing to suffer for in life? Very, very important. What are you passionate about? equals suffering and suffering reflects passion. The slide I have on your screen is a warning slide. That we live in a social media age. The age of hashtag revolutions and the likes. Do you know what it means? It means absolutely nothing for you and I the time. So we have to be careful, LSA, of the spirit of hashtag revolution and virtual likes that mean nothing for you and I. I don't say don't participate in Facebook. I say let's be careful. We have to be careful of becoming affectionate about that which we aren't involved in. The thumbs up don't advance the kingdom all the time in most of the cases. The hashtag, you know, we do those things in social media as to announce what we are doing. But we have to come back here and do Yeah? Run our finances. Pursue God. Hear God. Those things don't happen in social media. The kingdom of God will not advance through hashtag revolutions. And desktop revolutions. The kingdom of God advances through the sacrifice of the people. It is the same old, same old principles. The number of likes in social media. You know. How many people follow a particular video. Ultimately means nothing. Comes back to your life. Comes down to your marriage. Comes down to how you live your week. Comes how you raise your kids. That's what's important. Because we do live in a very virtual world. In the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God was advancing forcefully. Not in the days of hashtags. But thank God for social media. And I've actually met friends through social media. I've, I've seen the good side, the bright side of social But please, let's understand. The hashtag and the thumb mean nothing unless it connects to a real you know, life on the ground lived out passionately for Jesus Christ and with sacrificial decisions made along the way. Amen. Remember David with the, this statement, I will not sacrifice that which cost me Nothing. Second Samuel chapter 24 verses 23 to 25. When he's being offered by this man, Orona. Oh king, Orona gives all this to the king. Orona also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Orona. No. Insist on paying you for it. Because I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought, that's the line, David what? Bought the threshold. 
and their oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built on an altar to the Lord then sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. David is teaching us something about our journey with Jesus. I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. The question is, what does the existence and operation of a mission and this kingdom enterprise called LSA costs you and I? What does it cost us to have this thing moving in motion, to have the wheels rolling? Yeah? In Ezekiel chapter 1, they see this structure with the wheels rolling. What does it cost to have the wheels keep rolling? What does it cost you and I? That's an important, important question. What does it mean to be faithful for you in giving? What does it mean to be generous? And are we teaching our children to commit their lives, time, and finances to the mission of God? The way we structure our weekends can impart a spirit of indulgence to our children. We want our sons and daughters to know we are absolutely and extremely sacrificial people. That we don't preach it to them, but they can see it. When they are older and reflect about our lives, they can see, wow, dad and mom, we're absolutely given to the kingdom of God. They were not just Sunday attendees. They were absolutely given to the kingdom of God. We want to be given to the kingdom. Amen. We want to be given to the kingdom. I want to read again the scripture. Macedonians. Showing us their generosity. It flow from a, a huge bank balance. It flows from the heart. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 7. And now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Our severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond ability, entirely on their own, they, edgely, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the saints. And they did not, uh, they did not, uh, they did not do as we expected. They gave themselves First to the Lord, very important. And then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of sin. What a beautiful scripture. What a beautiful word from God. Passion. The passion of Christ. The sufferings of Christ. Passion equals and suffering reflects passion. We are passionate about Jesus. We are passionate about the word he, he spoke, is speaking into our hearts. About passion 
love the kingdom of God. And because we are passionate about these things, we will watch, we will suffer for these things. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Jesus.